Welcome back to another episode of Technical Roundup, brought to you by Blockfolio. Joining us today is Sam Bankman-Fried, who's kindly agreed to come talk to us about all things crypto, trading, and anything else that becomes relevant. So first things first, Sam, thanks very much for making the time to join us. I know this isn't your first podcast. We'll try to keep things fresh, but I hope all is well. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. And Duck, uh, how is how is pond life? Good, good. It's been busy, but I mean, that's always good, right? Indeed, in, in, in these sorts of markets. So we'll get we'll dive straight into it. One thing we like to do in preparation for these types of shows is to listen to previous appearances made by our guests to kind of see where they sit, where their interests are at, and to obviously try to pry um, new viewpoints, content, uh, and information from them during the course of the discussion. So Sam, I hope you'll forgive me, but at this point, we won't be asking you about the arbitrage trade that you're so famous for. <laughs> I've heard it so many times, I feel like I was there during the trade at this stage. Um, well, you may have been. It, it feels like it. So we'll, we'll try to bypass that. But I do want to get straight into it. So it's no surprise that you know you, you have a lot of scope to do these types of media appearances, because the British expression would be, you've got your fingers in a lot of pies, right? So the way I like yep. to think about it is you may be wearing different hats at different times. So there may be Sam the exchange owner, Sam the trader, Sam the builder in DeFi. You know, there's all sorts of um, endeavors or projects that are currently going on that are in some way associated with you. Um, I suppose I want yep. to start with a macro question of what are you trying to do within crypto? And do these different hats or paths that you're currently on, diverse as they are, do they converge towards something? Is there some sort of end game or um, teleology that people should be aware of? Yeah, so I think that, you know, in the beginning, um, I, you know, there sort of wasn't. And, and, and other than, um, you know, some sort of combination of, of, you know, try to make money and, and, and almost equivalently try and find areas that need more firepower in the space. And, you know, the, the way I think about that basically is like, where is there a ton of demand and not very much supply? And, you know, that could be in a token or liquidity on an exchange, um, or that could be in terms of a piece of infrastructure, like where does the world just really demand better infrastructure than exists? And that's probably an opportunity to do something. And so that's sort of how I, how I first came at it. And, you know, when I got into the space in late 2017, um, there was just, I mean, crypto is going crazy. Huge demands um, for liquidity all over the place and very little supply of it, like very few liquidity providers. Those that were around were not trading very large size. Um, they weren't on most venues. Very few were international. And so you saw these giant arbitrages blowing up. Um, and, you know, come 2018, um, and, uh, you know, as, as that sort of area started to, to take more shape and, you know, liquidity blowouts, while they happened, they were less extreme. Um, you know, a lot of what, you know, I started thinking about was the exchange infrastructure, which was, you know, really the central infrastructure of, of crypto and sort of is to this day, um, but which was not scaling into what it needed to be. To support that and and so that would serve another example of like you know the, the world is really demanding a lot from its crypto exchanges and those, those crypto exchanges aren't really aren't really you know keeping up with that um and, and and so that's part of the answer to this um but you know another part 
um, I think as, as things have progressed and especially over the last year or so, um, has been thinking a lot more about um, sort of the FTX ecosystem and what it means to build it out, where it could go and what the pieces are that it's going to need to get there. Um, and and that's sort of like, you know, something like, I don't know, Italy, a matching engine, like, sure, okay. Um, but, you know, beyond that, um, also, you know, what I, you know, beyond just sort of like the basic things, like, you know, in order to serve the segments of the population, especially ones that are just getting bigger and bigger in crypto, um, you know, the, the sort of retail traders who are coming into the space, the institutions, what are the things that, that, that FTX is going to need to put together to create a great experience for them as well? What's the end goal of it look like? And, and, you know, what do we need to build to get there? Oh, I like that very much. It's basically like you, you're playing the plumber part of crypto, right? Making it all exactly. work. Um, yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. We definitely need that because, I mean, if you look back through the history of crypto, I mean, that's been the missing link. And I definitely appreciate yeah. you stepping in there. In general, do you like have like a grander goal than that? Or is that just what you want to be doing? Like, do you want to just make it work? Or is there like something really big that you're working towards? I think those can kind of go hand in hand because, you know, when you think about what it would take to get to something grander, you know, that involves building something that's needed. Um, and so I think that, you know, if you look at what FTX could become, for instance, um, you know, right now it's it's one of the biggest crypto derivatives exchange, exchanges in the space, and you know one of the goals obviously is for it to become you know much bigger. I mean, continue to grow in the derivatives, uh, the international derivative space, but become bigger in the spot space. Um, you know, bar lending uh, options, tokenized products, and sort of everything else. But another piece of this is that when you think about what really most of the technology behind FTX is, right? What is there? There is well, you've got a match engine, you know, order books, you've got uh, a GUI, you've got mobile apps, you've got an API, uh, you've got wallets with deposits and withdrawals of crypto and fiat currencies, a risk engine, a liquidation engine, all of those things are, or at least almost all of them, are, are, are really useful to it being a successful exchange, but actually not that specific to crypto. Um, and if you think about, you know, what would make a good equities exchange, I mean, many of those are actually quite helpful. And so when we think about the future of FTX here, you know, part of what we've been thinking about is like, well, it, you know, it, it's a crypto exchange right now, but, you know, maybe eventually it just becomes an exchange, not just crypto. Um, and, uh, and in fact, a lot of what we've been doing feeds pretty directly into that. And so we've been thinking about, you know, what does that mean for what infrastructure we need to build, but also what we should be, you know, getting started on if we want to be able to offer you know, kind of a world-class equities exchange, a world-class prediction market exchange, and just a world-class exchange for any sort of financial assets. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I agree. A lot of the recent behavior has been, um, definitely shows, shows an appetite beyond crypto. And I can also imagine that that takes up a lot of time. One thing we wanted to touch on, um, which doesn't get a ton of coverage, but given your origins, um, as a trader and still your, you know, founding Alameda research, etc. How much trading do you actually do nowadays? Do you have the opportunity to? Is it via Alameda? Do you have a personal account? Um, where do you sit on the, you know, if we come back full right. circle, uh, where are you on the trading side of things personally? 
I do very little of it. Um, and, you know, to the extent I do, it's through Alameda. Um, but also it's, you know, I do, I do very little trading nowadays, uh, although Alameda obviously does a lot. And more so, you know, I think I do investing. And so, you know, when I think about, um, about, you know, what, what to buy and sell, you know, nowadays, I'm much less thinking about like, uh, you know, doing arbitrage because, I mean, there's a whole team of people doing that with Alameda, which is great. And I have a whole lot of things to focus on outside of that. Um, you know, more what I'm thinking about is, you know, what are there things we should be investing in, you know, either with a goal towards, you know, being sort of a lucrative investment or towards, you know, being a valuable partnership or an area of the ecosystem that we really want to be building out. What's the reason for that? Like, do you think the opportunity is still there to trade it all? Or is it just like that you and your company have grown too large to kind of just do the trading or like you personally right. have like more important things to do? Oh, it, I mean, the opportunity is still there in, in a lot of cases. And, you know, the company does still do it. Um, and, but, you know, we, we have a lot of people to do that. And, you know, both because and mostly because I have other things that I need to be focusing on. You know, I've been spending a lot less time on that. Um, and, and to the extent that I do think about, about taking positions, you know, it's mostly like context that I've been building up from, you know, work in the ecosystem to try and get a sense of like what would be, you know, a valuable place to be positioning ourselves, what would be, you know, a valuable thing to be getting in on. Um, and, uh, and, you know, as opposed to the sort of day-to-day, -day, you know, arbitrage or, or things like that, which is, you know, a, a fairly different type of thing and something which, uh, you know, I've, I've mostly passed off to the rest of the team. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's very interesting. And you, and you mentioned Alameda a couple of times. And one of the things that notionally uh, Alameda is associated with is obviously arbitrage trades, if you mentioned, uh, liquidity, pro providing liquidity on several exchanges uh, and other types of typically kind of delta neutral uh, behavior. Yep. One thing that I found very interesting is in a Twitter thread, uh, Sam Trabuco, I hope I haven't butchered his surname there. Yeah, um, not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> I think that I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll mark that as a pass. Um, there was a discussion whether there's a kind of asymmetry or leaving too much on the table by virtue of not being net long crypto. And he sort of offered a short, a short but sharp reputation, or refutation rather, saying that, you know, if only people knew how long Alameda has been crypto at certain segments or now or at some juncture. It wasn't specifically yep. specified. Now, my question is, how does a firm like Alameda get long crypto? Like, where does that decision trickle down in your day-to-day -day processes? Totally. And, and I think that one of the interesting things that this runs into, and we spent a lot of time thinking about this, um, is what does it even mean to be long? And, you know, I think that, that for, for a traditional you know, HFT firm, that's sort of a fairly straightforward question. It, it's, you know, basically, well, you know, you look at your long positions, you look at your short positions, you add them up, you see which is bigger. And it's sort of like, yeah, okay, that's what it means to be long. That, 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 that's kind of, kind of easy. Um, but uh, there's, it, it's actually quite a bit more complicated for us because, um, you know, let's say that, uh, you know, what if Alameda takes a big position in some project? you know, big enough that it, it's sort of large compared to the liquidity of that project. Um, that, you know, it really represents like some substantial fraction of the global liquidity of it. Um, does that count as a long position? You know, what if, what if, you, what if you create a coin, you found a coin, issue it, um, and then have a lot of it? Um, does, 
does that count as a long? And, and you know, maybe your naive answer is yes, it does. At which point I'd say, all right, well, I mean, you, you know, I'm sort of long a lot of FTX and FTT, right? Like, like, you know, what, what, what's it mean to be Delta hedge? Does that mean trying to take the, the, the full market cap of FTT? Like, like, I mean, that might be like a, an enormous short position that would be required to hedge that if you sort of take that literally, right? Um, but you can't take it literally because also if you did that, you know, we, we would like go bankrupt if, if markets dropped, you know, well before uh, we've realized anything from the, the FTT position, if that makes sense. You know, if, if you have just a massive long position from, from some one project where, you know, you wouldn't and can't liquidate a significant fraction of it in a short period of time and then hedge that whole notional mark to market with some short position, then and then crypto goes up, you're, you're, you're fucked short term, right? So, yeah. so it sort of actually opens this interesting question of what, what even does it mean to be short or long? Like, what's the baseline here? You know, does, does FTX or FTT count towards that baseline? And the answer can't be, yes, it fully does. And the answer probably isn't not at all also because, you know, I mean, I mean it does have a beta to Bitcoin. Like, Bitcoin goes up, FTT probably goes up. Um, and, and, and so you get this weird in-between answer, and, and, and it's sort of unclear what the right way to think about it is. Um, but anyway, putting that aside, you know, we, you know, sort of how asked this aside, you know, given that, like, what, what net positioning makes sense? And, you know, I think some of this is, is feeling like, look, there are a lot of bullish signs for crypto. Um, you know, there's a reason we're in this space. There's a lot of exciting things going on. Um, and, and, you know, didn't uh, want to be fully hedged out of that. Like, you know, we, we, we want to have exposure to the space. And so, you know, that means, uh, uh, yeah, that, 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 that means not being hedged fully. That means being net long. Yeah, okay, well, that's very interesting. And I agree, there's almost an in, a sort of built-in long by virtue of FTX in, in its sort of crypto-dominant nature, FTT existing as well. Um, yeah. And it's also very interesting about not being able to um, hedge everything. One of the things that you mentioned in passing um, was the idea of, well, well, generally expressing a view as to the market, right? Sort of bullish signals, bearish signals, um, what be it. Now, we talk to a kind of diverse number of traders, investors, and one question we always like to ask them is if you just kind of got out of bed or woke up and you had your data feeds or monitors at a glance, what sort of stuff do you look at to get an idea of where the market is in like a very short overview type of way? So we've had answers, you know, just like straight up price charts, certain futures data, um, and obviously it varies from person to person, but maybe in your, either your personal case or um, when you're more towards the Alameda side of things, how do you get a sense or context for the market? Sort of cheap, expensive, high, low? What, what are some important data points for you? Totally. So, you know, and, and obviously it depends on what's going on and, and during, you know, sometimes it's just like there's one coin that's overwhelmingly important to market dynamics at a particular point in time. And so, you know, it's just important to be watching that. But on average, sort of in general, I can tell you what I look at, which is partially just what have major coins done in the last, you know, minute, hour, 12 hours, day. Um, you know, what, what's Bitcoin done? What's Ethereum done? Um, partially I look at sectors. And so I'll look at, you know, what have uh, DeFi tokens done versus overall market. Um, you know, partially I'll look at uh, sectors that are particularly relevant or important to me. So, I mean, I look at what, you know, Solana ecosystem has done recently. And, and you all know, have sort of like, average performance of coins that are, you know, correlated to or related to Solana up. Um, 
Uh, I'll look at what FTT has done, obviously, because that's relevant to me. Um, and then, you know, I'll look at uh, at futures premiums. Is sort of the other thing that I'll look at um, and see, you know, are futures trading at a premium? Is that premium increasing or decreasing? Um, I mean, I think those are probably the, the standard set of things that I look at. Yeah. Um, a lot of, you know, one of the common threads is that futures data uh, is is really yeah. important. One of the big changes that we, we've observed from the what we call the BitMEX glory days, right, where you just long inverse futures and <laughs> may, maybe suffer from from the convexity if you end up on the wrong <laughs> side of that, uh, as as you'll recall, I'm sure. Uh, but Bitcoin market structure itself has changed a lot, and generally the rise of linear futures and you know linear futures for altcoins as well has completely changed market structure, but also how and what people trade. Do you have a kind of uh, overview or general image that you want to present of how things have evolved since you got in? Because back in the day, so to speak, you know, you were long Bitcoin inverse futures, and then you were trading uh, altcoin Bitcoin pairs primarily, right? Right. Uh, often the spot pairs of those even. And now it seems like we're, we're in a completely different uh, ecosystem. Uh, is that a transformation that's um, caught your attention? And obviously, you've innovated to a huge extent with uh, linear, for example, altcoin futures and other instruments. So I just want to see how, yeah. did you just see that as something missing from the market when you came around? Yeah, totally. And I think that, you know, part of this is, is, is random, but part of this is not. You know, one piece of this is what you talked about with the, the BitMEX dominance, where, you know, a few years ago, BitMEX was just a huge fraction of the overall crypto uh, exchange importance. And, uh, you know, obviously it's much less so now. Um, and, uh, and, you know, as, as a Bitcoin only exchange, that was obviously, you know, meant that a huge fraction of it was, um, you know, Bitcoin denominated futures. And with, you know, most of the other uh, exchanges don't do that. They either do um, linear futures or inverse futures um, for, for all coins. Um, and so, so, you know, just because of BitMEX, you know, the decline in BitMEX's dominance, we've seen a change there. Um, but, you know, outside of that, I think that like, um, the, the linear futures are much more similar to what you'll see in traditional finance. And so I think as, you know, the space institutionalizes, you'll see a lot more of those. Um, I also think that they're much more intuitive to deal with and let you express much more exactly what you're actually trying to express because, um, you know, they're literally just contracts on, um, what, what the performance of, of, of some token is going to be as opposed to anything, you know, more complicated than that or w with more sort of dongles on it than that. Now, you know, the, the standard inverse contracts are sort of, uh, you know, convertible with those in some sense. And so it's not a huge difference between them. Um, but the, the, the inverse contracts have weird parts that just have weird, unexpected consequences in lots of cases. And I think I'd point, you know, for like the clearest example of this to what happened a while ago um, with uh, OKEX uh, BCH features, where they forked out uh, BSV. And, you know, the plan with them, like, like with most of the futures, was that they were just going to cash expire to BCH's price post-fork. And a lot of things went wrong there. It's the most hilariously inept futures expert I've ever seen. Um, one of which was that they realized, probably a little bit too late, that if there's any chance something's going close to zero in price, inverted futures get completely fucked. Um, you know, imagine that, that BSV had won. And BCH was going to zero. You have this BCH future, which is cash expiring to zero, but it's actually an inverted future. It's actually a USD BCH future. 
USDBCH is expiring to infinity, which means that in order to settle these contracts, technically, um, you have to be delivering um, infinity BCH tokens worth zero each between longs and shorts, which is sort of a ridiculous notion. Um, and I mean, everyone is getting sort of infinitely liquidated. Um, and so, you know, that, 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 that sort of like proved a potential problem. And in the end, um, they, they sort of surprise expired these two days early to the wrong index, also the futures price and it was down limit. So it's just like a huge comedy of errors, but, but one of the core things went wrong was, was inverted futures just don't work if something has any chance of getting very close to zero. Yeah. I still remember that with uh, BitMEX, actually. I, I mean, that was like a similar story happening. Obviously, it ended better, but when, whenever something forks, you get that discussion, right? Where it gets yeah. incredibly complicated. Um, and we had the same thing with uh, the first fork that just went completely wild. But uh, yeah. 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 Forks used to be pretty inefficient affairs in crypto. Yeah. Um, do you think, in general, that the kind of move away from the inverse um, futures makes the entire market a little bit less correlated? Or do you think we still have that issue with, okay, Bitcoin moves, everything else moves? Um, because I think in the end, like the, the end goal is kind of going away from that, right? You don't want to be trading a market that is just moving in one direction and right. you have like an outlier one day, but it's like in general, just the same direction for everything. Yeah, I don't think that it has huge impacts on what net, net correlation look like. Um, I think, you know, things have remained fairly correlated. Um, there are some weird effects that go away. One example of this is if you get liquidations um, in, in a, uh, you know, in an ETH Bitcoin future, then you'll get short-term opposite directional movement between them. And so, you know, you'll sometimes see these, these plays where, as someone literally executes on one single leg of a trade, they'll cause a divergence uh, between the thing, you know, if it's an ETH-BTC future between ETH and BTC or, or you know, whatever they're, they're buying and selling, whereas when everything is sort of against USD, um, you, uh, you know, you'll, you'll more get just short-term and long-term correlation. So I think it's not a huge difference, but overall, you know, is a little bit more efficient uh, to just kind of skip to the end here of, of positive correlation. You know which which is where where these things end up, um, but uh, I don't think long term it has huge impacts on what correlations look like. So, okay, yeah. Do you think in general um, that the move? Because I'm I'm a big fan of the the BTC trading pairs. That might be because I mean I've just traded them for so long. But do you think yep. they're gonna go away in general, or do you think they're gonna stay around? But because like. In the recent few weeks, months, I mean, even in, in this year, it's kind of been that way that they've suffered a lot under the rise yeah. of the USD pair. I don't think they'll totally go away, but I mean, their, their trading volume is pretty low. Like even the places that still have them, like not a whole lot. You know, you can look at like BitMEX and it's just like very low volume for those pairs. So, and it's been a while since there's been significant volume there. There is some interest in it, but they're, you know, empirically people aren't expressing a ton of excitement for them. Um, and so, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that they'll completely go away, but, you know, I do sort of expect that they'll be, uh, you know, that, that they'll continue to decrease in market share over time would be my honest guess. Um, and that instead, if you want to, you know, trade an altcoin against Bitcoin, you'll end up doing a two-legged trade. Um, you know, one of them uh, being, you know, altcoin USD, another being Bitcoin USD. And, you know, it doesn't need to be that way, but 
that's how traditional finance works, among other things. Even if you're trying to to, to keep like you know a hedged book, um, you're, you're generally not trading like an Apple versus S and P 500 index pair. You're generally just trading, um, you know, trading Apple against USD, and then if you want to hedge it, you're you know selling, you know, S and P 500 futures against that. Um, and um, and so I would you know on the margin guess that we would just see that trend continuing. I agree. It also seems that people generally are much happier to use stable coins, just generally, for, to transfer, to yeah. participate in DeFi as collateral, as uh, to settle P&L, etc. So I think that's probably got something to do with it as well. If I had totally. To Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons that, that places had inverted futures in the first place was they didn't have stable coins. And so they didn't know how to, you know, they didn't know how to settle a linear future. If they had neither stable coins nor um nor dollars um and, and that's mostly changed as stable coins have just become omnipresent and i think that that's sort of what the future is um and, and i think it's it's you know it, it there there are pros and there are cons but i think on the margin it's probably for the better i think it just creates the more straightforward products um although it is a little bit sad that it is harder now to you know to easily express you know divergent opinions between two different tokens in in you know a single trade that's one way of putting it. But also for me, I just remember um, there was at one point this uh, script or mod that came out, which showed you your BitMEX PL in USD. So in the past, you'd be like, oh, well, I'm only down, you know, point whatever BTC or one point whatever BTC. That's really not much. And then whenever it convert to USD, uh, reality would hit when you start to equate to, re <laughs> to real world numbers. So I'm sure some people are oh, still yeah. getting used to that. I think that's right. And I think that like, I mean, again, you can go either way there, but the truth is that most people measure their dollars and they measure their wealth in dollars, not Bitcoins. You know, it, it, which is another way of saying that if Bitcoin, if someone has just a ton of Bitcoins and Bitcoin's price goes up, usually people feel happy about that. You know, which, which, which you know, as opposed to saying, "Well, I had twelve Bitcoins before; I have twelve Bitcoins now, so you know, no change." Um, and so. Um, yeah, I, I think PL measuring USD, like people will care about both, but I think that's going to be the dominant thing. And you know, I, I think that's here to stay. You mentioned when Bitcoin goes up, people are happy, but of course, the corollary of that is that sometimes it goes down and people are less happy. And one such manifestation, true. <laughs> one such manifestation of that perhaps displeasure is when people get liquidated, right? Um, and if if you were to, I mean, anyone who reads. Sam's the other Sam's, so to speak, uh, threads. He talks a lot about liquidation cascades, right? And I think liquidations as a data point when it comes to futures trading has become really prominent over the last year and a half, two years. Even when people choose their venue to trade, they might even look at liquidations as a percentage of volume, etc. But nonetheless, despite Bitcoin market structure changing, it's not only you know BitMEX dominance, long your collateral, etc. Liquidations still play a large part in this market, and no less liquidation cascades, right? Uh, for somebody Absolutely. who's unfamiliar with what a liquidation cascade is, and perhaps their only experience is that dreaded uh, liquidation email, um, you, this is something you've spoken about a lot, but maybe a explain like I'm five yeah. version of what a liquidation cascade is. Totally. So, you know, there's some effects in the world that have momentum and some that have mean reversion. And the ones that have momentum are fucking weird because they can, you know, when you sort of, draw out what happens over time with them, you can get caught in these feedback loops. And liquidations are one of those. So, you know, let's say that you put on some leveraged long position, right? 
uh, you know, you have you have a thousand dollars of collateral, and you you get long three thousand dollars of 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 Bitcoin, um, and, or you let's say five thousand dollars of Bitcoin to your five x leveraged, um, and then Bitcoin goes down, you know, 18%. So you're close to bankrupt, not quite there yet. Um, you have to get liquidated um, because the exchange has to make sure that your account doesn't, doesn't end up net negative. Um, so, so they start liquidating you. Um, and the thing that happens is, well, to liquidate you, they have to sell off your Bitcoin position um, in order to, to close down your account. So, that, so they sell it off on your behalf. Um, and that, that probably has a bit of impact. You know, that might drive Bitcoin down I mean, if it's if it's you know five thousand dollars, not going to have much. But if it's five million dollars, you know, maybe that that drives it down another you know quarter percent or something. Um, and uh, and whatever that you know keeps you know a few people get liquidated together, drives Bitcoin down a percent. But but now you have this thing where Bitcoin's down another percent, and so anyone who had previously been about to get liquidated now does get liquidated because Bitcoin's down even more. So you have to liquidate some more people, and that drives markets down even more. And now you have to liquidate even more people, and and so it's one of these things where, where as you liquidate people, it causes more liquidations. And there's just sort of this this coefficient here, which is you know basically um, you know if you drive Bitcoin down a percent, how much volume of, of Bitcoin positions does that cause liquidations in? And then that size of liquidations, how much further does that drive Bitcoin down? And if that ratio gets above one, if basically every percent of impact that you have uh, causes a set of liquidations that move Bitcoin down more than a percent, um, then you get caught in this positive feedback loop where you just start liquidating more and more and more. And every time you liquidate, you cause even more liquidations to be necessary than you just did. And so over time, even as the exchange is liquidating positions, the remaining liquidations they have to do just keep increasing. Um, and this can create a cascade that can be sort of self-perpetuating, go on potentially for a, a, a while and drive Bitcoin down a lot, even if the original thing only kind of caused, you know, a 5% down move, it might trigger this series of, of unfortunate events that, that ultimately ends with Bitcoin being down a whole lot more. And, and, you know, those can be, those can be kind of moderately big, but sometimes they can be huge. You know, sometimes that can cause a, liquidation cascade that goes on tens of percents and uh and huge momentum effects in markets um and and huge turmoil so that's that's sort of like really what uh what what liquidation cascade is yeah one one example being the march crash right i mean uh, yeah. we we're all sitting there um all watching it i remember myself panicking did you panic at all or were you just like oh this is a great opportunity to like get so, more exposure or right. do anything I don't think I quite panicked, but I, I definitely was was worried. I was definitely watching markets and feeling like this could be really bad for the for for the ecosystem. That you know, independent of whether it's a good trading opportunity or not, you know, if there's no crypto left at the end of it, that that's not good. Um, and uh, and yeah, that was the biggest liquidation cascade I've ever seen. It was billions upon billions of dollars got liquidated and drove Bitcoin down like fifty percent. Um. And there's this moment where it sort of felt like, boy, is this ever even going to end? Yeah. Like, you know, is, uh, is this going to liquidate Bitcoin down to zero? Like, what? It can't quite liquidate it down to zero because if it actually, you know, if it goes down to a dollar, then someone with $21 million on exchanges could buy every Bitcoin in existence and sort of stop that. So, so 
so okay, so there's a limit to how much effect it can have, really. But um, but it you know it could have liquidated things down to Bitcoin down to a thousand dollars, um, and uh, and then you get this sort of second order effect of liquidations where at some point businesses become unprofitable. At some point, lots of crypto businesses that made sense when Bitcoin was at seven thousand dollars just don't when it's at two. You know, like Bitcoin mining companies, um, and uh, and just like any 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 company with, with big expenses, and, and and so you you then get all these businesses going bankrupt, um, which which sort of like furthers the pressure, and everyone's sad, everyone's book is stressed. You know, there's bad debt everywhere, and so even people who felt like they were protected or hedged end up in a tough spot. Um, and yeah, anything could have been, you know, if it had gone on much longer, really, really bad for the industry. Certainly a memorable day uh, for all of us. I, I thought I listened, uh, you know, in another interview, uh, you mentioned some of the stuff that Alameda was doing on the day. Now, obviously, for those of us who were there, everything kind of broke during that crash. Like exchanges, yep. prices became wildly divergent. And that's one of the opportunities um, that you said you were taking advantage of. When prices get so, when well, prices and also just these moves get so extreme, do you give more space for discretion and perhaps space to express directional views that, you know, this is a kind of now or never do or die moment more than trying to um, arbitrage, for example, staying delta neutral? Maybe this is a good area to uh, express a directional view on the market as well, or at least it's very, very discounted in kind of historical relative terms. Was there space for that type of discretionary decision making um during the crash or even yeah. present day yeah i think there absolutely was and i think that you start to face these questions you're not used to one of which is like maybe the most important thing we can decide is whether to be long right now you know when bitcoin gets down to 5k but another of which is like here's a five percent arbitrage and it's like five percent in a day you know and you're sort of like oh geez like should we just put this on as, as big as we can and like usually the answer is obviously yes. Like five percent a day is amazing. But on March twelfth, it was sort of like, well, I don't know, maybe it's about to blow to ten percent and if we you know, don't want to blow our wad now. Um and also are we worried about getting liquidated? Like are are we worried that um you know, that, that if you sort of like put on too big of a position now, even if it's hedged, if things crash twenty percent in the next five minutes, you're not gonna be able to move capital around. And you'll get liquidated wherever your longs are, you know, before your shorts can bail them out. So you you get all these sorts of decisions that like are not usually what you're thinking about when trading, but that all of a sudden become really crucial. Yeah, I I mean it's the same kind of story. I remember back like a few weeks when we had the GPTC premium open up, right? Where it's like, oh yep. yeah, this is very obvious. I mean, you're going to make a bunch of money of, of this because, I mean, it's just trading way below below the index. And then you start thinking, okay, what does happen if other people that are already in it are going to get into pressure because, I mean, they didn't account for this much downside. Um, and then yeah. you're in trouble too if you enter. And it gets really difficult, right? Because you're like, oh, um, now I have to kind of look at, the picture from a completely different angle and kind of see are they in trouble are they not what are they going to do if they're in trouble so yeah i mean i i still remember the march crash really really vividly because i was sitting there i was like i know this is a good price but what does happen if other players in the market get in trouble yeah totally agree totally agree and 
And yeah, it's like, you know, this seems like great to buy it at, you know, a 2% discount, but is going to trigger selling? Like what if it goes to 20% tomorrow? One of the hallmarks of those types of instances and just generally to the topic of arbitrage was uh, almost like a colloquial talking point, but crypto is so inefficient, right? Uh, in, in sort of air quotes. And, you know, from previous bits of writing and just my own experience, uh, it's obviously more, it's become more efficient every year. And those really obvious opportunities uh, become increasingly rare. Now, one observation, uh, totally anecdotal, um, that I've made is that a lot of sort of delta neutral market making, electronic market making firms, etc. They're also very active now uh, in the specifically in the crypto investment space, right? Be it as a VC, um, you know, buying yep. tokens, you know, ex exchanges, obviously, on the uh, on the slightly other end of the spectrum. But generally speaking, it moves from just being, um, you know, taking advantage of these inefficiencies to much more explicit bets in a, almost kind of in an investor mindset on companies, on projects, on tokens, etc. This may be cynical, but do you think that type of uh, venture capitalization, if you will, or metamorphosis from purely kind of electronic market making, etc., to having this uh, investor approach, you think that's a product of the market becoming more efficient and therefore having to go elsewhere for edge? Or is it just a natural progression of we're in crypto, we know the space, we have the contacts, we know the infrastructure, and now uh, it's time to put our investor hats on? I think it's two things. I think that's one piece of it. You know, spreads have been coming in. But I think at the same time, investments have actually been seeming more and more attractive. Um, separately from that, because you've just, you know, I mean, I, I, there's, I sort of like sometimes express skepticism about what people really mean when they say bull market or bear market, because it sort of implies future predictions, not just looking at what happened in the past, but you can really tell in crypto when it's a sort of market that everything's going up in and that if there's a new listing, it's going to have huge, huge demand. Um. And so, you know, during those sort of markets, like, like during a bear market, like investing in other projects often seems sort of lame or, or bad because there's just like, there's not going to be any demand for them. You know, it's sort of like you go through all this work and you're like, great, like, you know, it went up 20% when it listed from, you know, the pre-sale price. Uh, that, that was sort of the winning case. Whereas in, in bull markets, you get these, you know, hundred X's. And, and so I think that, that at the same time, there's both you know, more compression of some forms of, of arbitrage, um, but also more and more opportunities um, to to make bets on, on projects because I think the upside is a lot bigger. Is there a difference for you between just jumping into a project because you like the project or like jumping into a project because you want to be having a, like a position as Alameda, kind of trading it around, seeing, like making profit off of it in the near term? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, 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 there's a blurry line here sometimes. And, and, you know, some of these look, um, you know, sort of look more like investments and some of them look more like trades. Um, uh, but, uh, and, and, you know, some of them look more like partnerships. And, and so there really is a spectrum there, um, you know, depending on, on what the goal is. And how do you decide on that? Whether, like, you want to be, like, what, what, what your goal is in the, in the kind of partnership. Do you just go at, 
look at, okay, this is something that would be interesting for people to trade on, but I don't actually like it too much, but I'm still going to get involved because, I mean, at some point you kind of have to, right, as FTX in general. Like if something is really liked and traded a lot, you'd kind of be doing a disservice to to the to the exchange if you wouldn't be kind of trading it or listing it. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, in general, you know, I think FTX wants to list the projects that people want to trade. And that that's really the the overarching goal. And I think that like, um, you know, that uh, often those are the same projects that people want to be investing into. Um, and uh, uh, but but but, you know, I think the biggest goal there is just like, what is their demand for? You know, what do people really want to be trading? What are our users asking us for? Um, and, you know, sometimes we'll just sort of push out a bunch of things because, uh, you know, there's there's nothing pressing in, and we think it's time for us to add more offerings. And, and other times we'll sort of identify particular, yeah, particular products or coins that people really have been, have been um, asking us for a lot and, uh, you know, try and try and find ways to get them listed. Yeah, it's not always uh, a lot of blurred lines in crypto, it feels like, and, you know, distinctions between partnerships, investments, listings, it's, it, it, all, it all, you know, that melting pot can be quite difficult uh, to distinguish yeah. from time to time. And one such subject uh, is a kind of Alameda, Alameda and DeFi generally. So wallet tracking services are also becoming increasingly popular, you know, the oh Nansens of the world and uh, you know, <laughs> th those sorts of things. And purely, you know, colloquially, and I'm sure, I mean, you've seen 100%, people following the farms or pools that Alameda quote-unquote yep. apes into uh, and then tries to make sort of inferences as to what you're there for. Um, can, can they sort of ride on the coattails for some sort of trade? It's a very weird paradigm um and yeah so my kind of i suppose it's a bit of a broad question does alameda have an explicit mandate when it comes to its participation in DeFi, especially on the ground level like yield farming etc or is it very much the case of uh you know a discretionary assessment that there is asymmetry here or some sort of opportunity or inefficiency uh, and we're going to trade and participate accordingly uh, it's mostly alphabetical um no uh, um <laughs> I, it's it's totally discretionary. Um, there there's no one specific mandate there. It's all uh, just a combination of heuristics, and uh, you know some combination of what are the good trades, what are the things that that Alameda wants to support, and um, uh, and you know what what the cost of capital is, and, and what the you know what the alternatives are at the time, what the collateral necessary is. So there are a lot of things that go into it, but you know. In general, I think it's like, you know, me, people can try and read what they want into that. And I mean, I, I don't work, you know, I'm not trying to recommend that. That's people's, you know, right to try and do if they, if they think they can get information on it. But, you know, definitely don't rely on that as a specific type of signal. Um, it can sometimes mean idiosyncratic things. And, you know, it's definitely not something that, that Alami is trying to, to present to the world. Um, and, I, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'll try and make it pretty explicit when there's, you know, a project that I'm sort of like explicitly talking about how I think it's a real cool project. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, looking at, um, looking at wallet addresses is, is going to be a pretty, a pretty messy and noisy way to decipher that. Well, that's, that's a good segue. I, because I want, want to ask you, what do you think about all the on-chain metrics, all that kind of uh, analysis? 
analysis that gets thrown around. Um, do you think it has any merit or do you think it's mostly just noise? So, uh, or sorry, which, which on-chain match? Like, I hear a lot. So like in general, we've heard, like we've have a few people on Twitter that just kind of post, okay, this old coin has been moved to the exchange. Um, it's going to dump uh, it out now. Or like in general, like these kind of like, Right. I mean, people say, okay, yeah, there's, there's a lot of alpha in there. I don't really subscribe to it, but I really want to hear yeah. more. Inflows, outflows, deposits yeah. of Bitcoin, yeah, stablecoins primarily, all right. that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I think what I'd say is roughly there are specific cases where it's super valuable. Um, in most cases, it's totally useless. Usually it's just noise. Um, you know, occasionally it's something really big. And if you somehow can distinguish those from each other, if somehow you can figure out when it's noise and when it's not, then I think it can be super valuable and it is occasionally a super strong sign. But if you have no no special you know intuitions about what means what or or ways to parse them, and you're just looking at what everyone else is looking at, I think like you're usually just picking up on noise, and it's got such a high noise to signal ratio that you know I'm skeptical that people are able to net do really good trades on them. If they if they aren't sort of combining it with additional context or knowledge about what's going on, yeah. So confluence over everything. I mean, that makes sense, right? It's it's in trading. It's it's all about having confluence between several different things. So I mean, if yeah. you can kind of add it to your two belts and you kind of have something going there, why not, right? Exactly. You know, if you sort of like heard a rumor that like you know someone was going to do a big trade in some direction on Bitcoin today on on Coinbase. And you, you thought that was true, you didn't know the direction. And then all of a sudden, you see a huge Bitcoin deposit on Coinbase. Sure, like, you know, that maybe that's a sell signal, you know. So you get, maybe that's that guy depositing sell. So it's, you know, the, sometimes you can combine things together and, and come up with strong signals. But but yeah, if you, if you don't have any other contact, I think it's pretty hard to do much with that. Yeah, that, that's our that's our understanding as well. Especially the short term stuff just uh, boggles my mind. How people can just think, you know, the perception that you can get access to these alerts, and then as soon as it happens, you, you can put on a directional trade. I, w I wish my trading system worked like that. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't. Uh, but on the topic of exchanges, and one thing that a couple, a few of our viewers kind of urged us or poked us to ask about, um, FTX has grown very quickly, right? And it's probably one of the most explicit success stories of almost bootstrapping liquidity to a large extent yourself, right? One of the criticisms or kind of questions that was there from day one, I think it's to a lesser extent now, but still comes up from time to time, is do you, do you see any type of problem with, well, first of all, is it true that Alameda is a large or a majority or even just large liquidity provider on FTX? And if, if that is true, if the first premise holds, um, do you think that's a valid criticism at all? Or is it just a fact of that's where the liquidity comes from? Do you kind of, is it even a valid uh, criticism in your mind? Right. Do you see where people are coming from? Yeah, I mean, it could go either way. I think that, you know, I understand why it worries people. And I think there's, you know, a world you can imagine which is totally benign, uh, a, a world which is in fact better than that. And a world in which it is quite worrying, and I think you know, it all depends on the specifics. And you know, it's, one thing I'll say is, at the beginning of, of FTX's existence, um, um, Alameda was the majority of the liquidity on it. I mean, it was like you know, on day one, there is sort of no one else who is going to be providing you know large amounts of liquidity there on, on an exchange that literally just turned on. Um, and uh, and Alameda was really really important for bootstrapping it. 
and for being able to you know solve this problem of how to get users without liquidity or or, or liquidity without users um over time as more and more liquidity providers have onboarded to ftx um alameda's you know refraction of that liquidity has dropped a lot and you know the majority of the liquidity is, is not provided by alameda anymore um you know now most of it is provided by other firms and uh you know it's been it's, it's been pretty precipitously dropping over the last year um which i think is really good to see because you know it's important for the long-term health of the exchange and its ability to grow is because it can that that it can live independently and and become you know really a, a product of its own and i think that's that's something that's really happened you know ha didn't happen that much over the first year of existence but has happened a ton over the last year um so i think that's sort of like the 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 the, the first just thing that i would say um and you know beyond that i i think i'd say that 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 you know alameda's goal was always to help bootstrap ftx to help get it off the ground and provide liquidity when others wouldn't and just find ways to make it a better exchange not to to, to try and gain anything from that particularly um and i you know i think that that was something that a lot of people were worried about at the beginning and, and i think that those worries have also gone down over time partially because you know Alameda has become a much smaller fraction of it but also partially because i think people started trying it out and sort of felt like you know when they did like oh, okay no this sort of like works pretty straightforwardly like you know it's not uh you know not 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 really evidence of of you know anything bad going on there i um, mean and, and so i think you know that that sort of contributed to it as well have you noticed any kind of varying appetite in terms of the types of products that external firms are more willing to provide liquidity to than others just like i'd say the bitcoin perps probably very popular but then obviously ftx is also known for some of some of the more exotic uh, products that are yep. available in mainstream cryptocurrency sort of centralized exchanges um do you see that reflected in the behavior and preferences of the liquidity providers on the platform that some products are just more popular than others absolutely and i think it's it's pretty cool you know, it's pretty proportional to global crypto trading volume of the product. And so, and crypto trading volume in particular of it. And so, you know, you look at something like, you know, if we launch an Ethereum feature, there's going to be a lot of people providing on that. Um, you know, if we launch a, uh, you know, less liquid token, there will be some, but less. Um, whenever FTX launches a product that is not crypto native, whether it's a prediction market, tokenized equity, or, or anything else like that, um, you know, generally there's a lot less liquidity and a lot fewer liquidity providers who are active on those. Yeah, um, something completely different from that, because uh, I mean, we're starting to run out of time and really wanted to ask you that. If you're kind of coming new into the space, if you're like, okay, I want to get involved in crypto, what do you think is the best way to do it? Do you think like a trading approach is a good one? the investor approach do you think you should be working at a firm or like where do you think a new person should be heading yeah well i think the biggest thing i would say is like you know do you have knowledge or an advantage in one of these areas is there something that seems compelling to you and that you feel like you know how to address and if so then i think that's a great place to start and i think if not um then that's a lot harder and i think i would more recommend uh finding a team to work with for it okay yeah that's a very Just, good way of putting it yeah sorry go ahead Craig. no i was also going to say you know if we're on the topic of 
setting a framework for those entering the space if they're new. I really like that answer about relying on uh, existing edges or advantages. But on the trader side of things, because obviously it's very popular to trade, the volatility, the perceived upside, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a great instrument uh, to punt, so to speak. Even as a... Um, you know, even if directional bets aren't necessarily uh, bread and butter, but speaking generally from a trader's mindset, do you think there's anything that newer traders or developing traders can borrow or even implement from your framework or how you make decisions or think about markets generally? So, for example, Avi Fellman of Block Tower Capital, he talked about um, how he interprets asymmetry in the markets and what it really looks like both for trade ideas and you know short-term investments etc so is there anything uh, almost kind of low-hanging fruit that people can um, borrow from how you view markets and apply it to their framework yeah i mean i think that during some market environments are actually pretty easy arbitrages to do um and i think this is one of those um you know shorting futures and long longing uh crypto is one example Lending out your USD is another very similar one. Um, you know, right now you can make, um, you know, 30 to 100 percent annualized just lending USD on FTX, and so, um, or you can try and manage a crypto versus futures spread. Um, and so, you know, I do think that there are some pretty straightforward good arbitrages to do right now. Um, outside of that, you know, I, I think that like. Um, Sometimes I think people really do have reasons to think that there are going to be medium-term moves in, in, in sectors in crypto or in crypto overall. You know, some people think they can predict Bitcoin price movements on long timescales. Maybe it's right. Um, I certainly think that some people can predict um, projects that are going to outperform. And I think some of this is sort of having conviction about something, feeling like that conviction is going to be proved right eventually. And you know, understanding why it hasn't been, even if it's unpopular, um, and 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 sticking with it. And I think you know, I would point to to a few things there. I think, you know, some VC firms that you look at, if you try and understand, you know, why they invest in what they do, it's totally incomprehensible. And I mean, who knows? And really, the answer is well, they're really deep in the crypto ecosystem, just had a ton of context on this, and that that's a hard thing to do. Others, I think you'll see kind of right up their theses and they'll be much more like, look, we've thought deeply about this and here's our thesis and here's why we think this is going to be a good project. And there'll be the kind of things that you could do as an outsider or as a semi-outsider. Um, I think some of multi-coins investments look like that. Um, and I think that, you know, especially when you look at, you know, they're really the, the, the biggest first backer of Solana. And I think you look at their theses for why, and they're pretty compelling. Um, and and I think that they, uh, you know, that that was sort of an example of of someone who, you know, wasn't doing an extremely, you know, part of it was based on in depth knowledge of things in the crypto ecosystem, but some of it was also just based on look, like here's just the thing we've thought through that we think a lot of people haven't thought that hard about, and we think eventually people will have to. There are ARBs, there are yields, and also VCs who are more transparent about their reasoning than others, and those are worth studying. Uh, I think those are all very yeah. good tips. Um, you've been incredibly generous with your time, Sam, and for that we're grateful. I do want to ask a final question. Is it true that yeah. the majority of your net worth is in FTT? And if so, what's the clear path to kind of liquidating that to uh, meet your broader goals of giving it away? 
just on the, slightly on the fun side. Yeah, uh, not FTT alone, but but if you add that to FTX equity, then then that that then it may be, um, you know, that probably is, um, and I, you know, I I think that like I, it's it's a long game is basically the answer. It's I, uh, you know, it's it's not sort of a uh, here's the goal to get out of this type thing. It's a build as big and impressive and valuable uh, of of. Uh, a company and ecosystem as we can. And, you know, eventually that will, you know, everything that we do will hopefully accrue value. Um, and I, uh, and that, you know, there's no rush to, 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 to sell any of it. And, you know, it's one thing to have sell side liquidity out to buyers if they're looking to buy, but, you know, that's a very different thing than trying to just, you know, aggressively sell into markets, which is not what I think we'd want to be doing here. And, uh, and that, you know, really, really the answer is, um, uh, you know, the, the answer is for, for FTX to do well. And, uh, and, and that's going to create, you know, the value and the revenue for equity and, 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 you know, the liquidity and the utility for the token and everything else. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Again, you've been incredibly kind with your time, Sam. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. Uh, thank you for coming yeah. to speak with us. Uh, Duck, any final comments, notes, concerns, questions? I I've had a really good time. I'm sure our audience will appreciate this a lot. No, no, I really appreciated it. Um, a lot to think about now. Um, always love to hear from people that are smarter than me, and I feel like that kind of was the case this time it's around. Nice conversations <laughs> for you, isn't it, Donald? Oh. <laughs> That is true. Sadly, <laughs> that is true. But I mean, it's nice to be in a space where everyone is really intelligent, I would say. So, um, but yeah, appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming by. Would love to do it again if if you feel so yeah, inclined absolutely. to. Um, someone down the road and then just go deep into a topic. Indeed. So, yeah, no shortage of topics in this market. Thank you again to Sam, to The Duck, the show's sponsor, Blockfolio. Visit Blockfolio.com or Blockfolio.trade for the mobile app. That's all from us. Thank you very much, and we'll see you for the next episode.